please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is presented by the Space Camp Explorers Club, a new way to support the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and Space Camp. Members of the Space Camp Explorers Club gain exclusive access to content, behind-the-scenes stories, and members-only swag. To learn more, visit SpaceCampExplorersClub.org. Space camp. Okay, full disclosure of how much of a nerd I am. Three times. <laughs> and I did after I think it was after sixth or seventh grade. I did Academy level one once, and then Space Academy level two twice. Um, so it was like seventh, eighth, ninth grade, right? At, right in that time, and just. Uh, I obviously loved it because I kept going back. Yeah. <laughs> Mandy Vaughn is the founder and former CEO of Vox Space, a subsidiary of Virgin Orbit providing launch services to the U.S. government and our allied nations. She's an Air Force veteran who served as chair of the workforce development efforts for the National Security Space Association and is currently a member of NASA's National Space Council Users Advisory Group. I'm Ryan Ferricelli. Join me as I learn what makes this extraordinary individual dare to explore i've got a spaceship that i'm waiting for i'm flying up to the stars i'm gonna dare to explore this time and i'll let you know what i find Uh, the Dallas area, outside of Dallas, Texas. I remember from the earliest time watching the space shuttle and watching the space shuttle launches and just being amazed at at this this. It was awe inspiring. I mean, it was it was it was huge, and and also seeing you could tell that everybody knew that this was incredibly special, right? Because even the reaction from the people and, you know, how crowded the beaches were and that this was something that was truly special and amazing. And then just then thinking about it from the technology perspective of watching it land like an airplane um, (laughs) after taking off like a rocket was just kind of like the coolest mind blowing thing as a kid. So I was just naturally fascinated by that. And so kind of had the equal dream of really wanting to either be an astronaut or a princess. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Why not both? (laughs) Why not both, right? (laughs) And uh, so just loved the technology and gravitated towards liking airplanes just in general as well. So always just had a propensity for all things space, but it really was as, as a kid just falling in love watching the space shuttle. It was just the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. I took my first flying lesson. It was a birthday present when I was 11. Uh, You know, just a little Cessna 152 from a local airfield there. And it was just kind of mind-blowing because um, to be in a a little plane, but then also where it's like, okay, the mechanics of flying, you get to experience and feel, but then also all of the other things that you don't necessarily see, this 
What do all the stack of radios mean? How do you know what to say? <laughs> what is all this chatter on the radio? And so all of that just, it just was all new, but neat and fascinating. And uh, I, I enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it um, and wanted to learn how to, how to fly. And my parents told me, they said, oh, that's really great. And, um, but you, you can't learn how to fly an airplane until you can drive yourself to the airport. <laughs> Isn't really a rule, but my parents told me it was like, oh, okay. Um, so when I turned 16 and got my driver's license, uh, I had a friend who, who his father had an aircraft and had a plane that was based in an airport with a small FBO and knew a flight instructor. So I'm like, well, hey, I met this flight instructor and I can drive myself to the airport now. So can I learn how to fly? And my parents are like, well, okay, I guess so. <laughs> it was just awesome. And it's just a great thing to learn. I attended space camp. Okay. Full disclosure of how much of a nerd I am three times. And I did after, I think it was after sixth or seventh grade. I did academy level one once and then space academy level two twice um so it was like seventh eighth ninth grade right at, right in that time and just uh i obviously loved it because i kept going back yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you were already flying had, had already been doing flying lessons at that point so how did you find that that equated you know to being in the cockpit of the space shuttle you know kind surprisingly similar um in terms of at least the familiarity with what it, is it going to look like of having a stick and rudder, even though it does operate totally differently, but it somewhat similar in terms of the checklist mindset. Okay. When you're uh, at those critical phases of flight where it really is, okay, a checklist driven mindset and the communication pattern of uh, I'm going to tell you to do something, you respond back that you did it, and kind of how do you divide the, the cockpit responsibilities. Um, it's it's all based on the same kind of crew delineation of duties and positive controls. It's all based on the same premise, whether you're flying a Cessna 152 or Endeavor, <laughs> which is kind of incredible, but obviously one's a, a little more complicated and needs a little more manpower. <laughs> sure. <laughs> How did your time at space camp influence or, or reinforce your decision to, to go into aeronautics or, or astronauting? Is that you a word? Do you say astronauting? Astronauting? <laughs> a word. If it's not a word, it should be. I yeah. like it. Um, I think it definitely, I mean, it's so impactful. And I think what makes space camp impactful is, is, how immersive it is you know it's not that you're just going into a class and then leaving and going back to real life like you you get to go and you're staying in the habitat module all day is where you have um the the crew schedules or even as it were if you were a, a space crew getting ready for your rotation right um going through all the different disciplines that you have to learn um so just the, the fact that it's immersive and in a constantly good balance of educational and fun, to be in an environment like that where uh, you meet so many people that are like-minded, right? So it's all these people from all over the country that some of them like airplanes, some of them want to be doctors, some of them know that they want to be an engineer and all these different facets, but you all had this same passion or quasi-passion 
learning more about space and the space program. And so it just, that, that whole culture of, and experience was just uh, kind of definitely formative because it hits you also at such a important time where it's like, okay, you're going from junior high to high school. Right. Like, hey, you know, I really can do this. And there are a lot of people that love to do this. And there's all kinds of jobs. There's all kinds of roles. And um, there's a huge community. So it just was, it made it to where it kind of opened my eyes that this is this is a real world um, that you can explore and it's it's accessible. Train like an astronaut and get lost in space at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Exclusive family weekend programs are available to try your hand at piloting the shuttle and is based on both the past and the future of space exploration. Pilot the space shuttle and attempt to land safely with the museum shuttle experience. Your team of up to four participants must work together to land the shuttle and bring the crew safely home. Museum admission is required. Find out available times, prices, and more at rocketcenter.com and get ready to blast off. So you ended up at MIT in Massachusetts yes. uh, and yep. and your master's was in aeronautics and astronautics. Yeah, flying through the air versus flying through space and all things associated and the science associated with it. Okay. But the aero astro department at MIT is just equally that, right? I mean, it's it's just so well versed in, in both air and space. And um, as a master's student there, I worked with a group called the uh, Lean Aerospace Initiative where their mission was uh, how can we make aerospace products like airplanes and satellites and rockets, how can we make them faster and more repeatably and more affordably like cars, right? Why are all of these things custom, perfect, tailor-made? Like how can we change? How do we think about these systems and uh, how do we produce them? Hugely educational. I got to work with industry see things for real, follow real teams as they were building products and what were their problems, what were their challenges, how do these larger organizations make decisions and in, in building something like an F-22 or a Delta IV rocket. It's like, right. woo, that's, a, that's tough. So it was a fabulous balance of abstract uh, problem solving and how do you think through an engineering problem along with real world boots on the ground, go go see how the real world builds real stuff. You also started or restarted their skydiving club while you were there. <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> they had a skydiving club. I didn't start it the first time around. Um, and MIT had a, a, a good, a cool relationship with the drop zone outside of town and called Jump Down in Orange, Massachusetts. Just pretty. It's Western Mass. It's gorgeous. Sure. When did you first skydive? Um, let's see. First sky. Made my first skydive after it was between my freshman and sophomore year in college at MIT, and uh, I went through the Air Force ROTC program there at MIT. So that um, was just an awesome program. But one of the summer projects or summer programs you could compete to go into was uh, at Freefall. It was called Freefall. It was at the Air Force Academy. 
So we could, as ROTC cadets, uh, go to the Air Force Academy for their jump program. Um, I really didn't have a lot of interest in necessarily skydiving. I had no experience or exposure to jumping out of planes. I was perfectly happy flying them. <laughs> right. Staying in them. And um, that felt like a happy place. And But uh, the, it wasn't necessarily about the skydiving as much as it was this was a leadership course. Like you, you go to the Air Force Academy, you spend a week in ground training, and then you go through, uh, you make five skydives, and your first skydive is a 10 second delay. You jump out, count to 10, pull your own ripcord. And that's, I, I think it's still the only place in the world where that is how you make your first jump. Normally a tandem jump your first time, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, now it's a tandem or, you know, back it could be a static line where something's pulling the parachute for you. But this was, you know, jump out, count to 10, pull a ripcord, fly your own parachute down. Wow. So I was hooked on the first jump because I'm like, oh my God, this flying a parachute thing is just so cool. It's all the fun of flying an airplane without the noise. <laughs> and, um, and then eventually it's like, hey, you know, the free fall part's pretty fun too. Um, but it really was a confidence course. It was about self-confidence and understanding that you can with with training and uh, preparation and just keeping clarity of thought put yourself into a situation that is really uncomfortable strange and new and scary and deal with it you know and I still remind myself of um, the jump master there he was a great tech sergeant and think breathe relax <laughs> like okay and how many times in your life are you faced with something that's stressful or hard or strange and it's just kind of like, okay, think, breathe, relax, and you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> How many times have you jumped now? Uh, over 700. Wow. Yeah, over I'm, 700. I'm at zero. Okay. okay. <laughs> Feet squarely on the ground. I'm, I feel comfortable <laughs> with that. Yeah. I'm <laughs> comfortable with that. <laughs> So after the ROTC yep. program, you you joined the you enlisted in the Air Force. Yep, yep. So I was uh, commissioned as an officer uh, after I graduated, and I was active duty for seven years. And um, uh, very very fortunately, my first job, no kidding, as a second lieutenant, active duty was just to stay there at MIT and go to grad school. <laughs> so that was fantastic. And then I went from there to uh, Hill Air Force Base outside of Salt Lake City in Utah mm -hmm. and worked in the uh, um, ICBM uh, program office. It Basically, we were all on the acquisition and the engineering side, supporting the missiles that are deployed out in the field. Right. And um, fascinating ex experience because, you know, the Minuteman Three, the nuclear triad, you have all of the things that are hard about space in terms of rockets and reliability and having to go into space um, and have good quality, of course, but then everything that has to do with doing it 500 times. There were 500 Minuteman missiles out in the field at the time. So it's like, oh, wow, this is, this is wild. Rather than, you know, one rocket, we had 500 of them. Um, so all of the upgrades or changes or modernization programs had to ripple through this whole fleet. Um, so it was a really interesting engineering and programmatic experience. And I had a great, great, great colonel that I worked for there. 
After the Air Force, you joined Virgin Orbit. Yes, I did. Went to Virgin in 2015. It was then Virgin Galactic before they spun off Virgin Orbit. And Virgin Orbit is such a, it's such a neat company because what they're doing, um, we've had rockets for a long time now. And we've had big ones, little ones, whatever. Um, but there's this whole new sector in the space business with smaller satellites where it's like, okay, rather than having these Greyhound bus size satellites to do something we, with electronics and manufacturing methods and computing power, we can get more out of a smaller package and still do quite a lot. So you can save a lot of money in the satellite build and the launch by having these much smaller things. And uh, Virgin Orbit's approach is, is just neat since they've got a, a, a rocket that's still pretty good size. It's about 70 feet long that hangs under the wing of a 747 and they launch it. They fly the 747 to 35,000 feet, drop the rocket, and it launches. Um, so it's really mobile. And you know, rather than having all of your launches happen from fixed locations, you can really move the system around and fly out of pretty much anywhere that can take a 747, which is a lot of places. You were the senior director of business development there. At some point, that spun off into Vox. Yes. I started Vox back in 2017. So you you were part of starting it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was my fault. <laughs> so Vox Space was a subsidiary company to Virgin Orbit set up to work with the U.S. government, primarily the, the DOD, the Department of Defense side. It was early in my time at Virgin Orbit where it's like, yeah, if we really want to get into meaningful discussions with the Air Force and, you know, now the Space Force about how can we help you and get space launch contracts for the government, we really have to stand this, this company up. Um, so started the company in 2017 and won our first contract with uh, the DOD in 2017, October that year. So it was right away, uh, one, one a launch to fly some uh, experimental payloads for the space test program. And actually that mission is gonna fly here uh, very soon for Virgin Orbit. They're next in the queue. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited to, to watch the team and, and see this next flight go out of Mojave with a, a Vox Space logo on the fairing and government payloads. It's like, yeah, let's, let's do it. We made it real. It's very exciting. The first Vox payload to go up? Yeah, yes, it will. So super exciting. <laughs> You're part of the National Space Council User Advisory Board. I'm there for a couple different reasons. One is is to represent Fox Space, but then also more broadly, um, the small launch sector, and as well as kind of the more new space sector, kind of the, this this commercial economic part that um, the Vox Space's customers really kind of tap into. Um, the other launch providers have representation on there as well. We've got um, Bob, the Bob Smith from Blue Origin, Tori Bruno from ULA, Gwen Shotwell from uh, SpaceX, and Tim Ellis from Relativity. So you've got like, all of the main companies that provide access to space there. Um, but my perspective on it and in my charter, it was a little little different just since it's like okay you're there to represent your sector but my sector is is 
also this new space kind of fun community. That's where Tim Ellis and I have a little bit of overlap. Uh, I was very involved with the UAG on both the national security side and the education and outreach side. So everything you can't talk about and everything you can. Yeah. (laughs) and, you know, both were, were amazingly, uh, I think both are critically important and, and very intertwined, right? Because on the national security side, obviously, there's constant discussion of policy and priority and with the stand-up of the Space Force, um, trying to, to help the decision makers prioritize. And on the education and outreach side, uh, Eileen Collins, uh, former Air Force colonel and, and astronaut, um, she put together a very active team um, that included Homer Hickam from, from Space Camp uh, Board as well in terms of, okay, how do we get the message out there that uh, all of the facets of being in the space industry are important and accessible? What are the programs that work? How do we get people engaged? Um, and how do we increase the number of people that that want to contribute to this mission, whether it's as an engineer or as an astronaut or as a policy expert or as a teacher to to really help increase kids' participation in the career field. So on the education outreach side, it's been a vibrant time and uh, I think just a super important mission. You you, you keep saying new, new space. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that that concept. I'm really struck by this difference in talking with some of uh, the, these sort of first generation aeronautic engineers. And it was exploration, science and a little bit of defense. And and today, you know, you were talking about the cell phones. Today's space is it's transportation. It's you know, it's all of these other things that affect our daily lives. It's funny because uh, new space, I guess, is now becoming an old term. But- <laughs> better one yet but it's it's really kind of it's an amazing uh ecosystem right so again now with kind of technology and um, a lot of elements of getting stuff into space and building things that can go into space have become a lot more affordable and accessible um it's not so mysterious so that gives way to a whole slew of new companies where it's not about their value proposition isn't about building a satellite. Their value proposition is about how do we affordably get your data to the people that need it? And how can we make smart decisions about that? And it's it's so much easier and faster to do um, rather than saying, well, now I have to go design and build a rocket. And then I have to design and build a satellite and have to design and build a ground architecture to get the data. A lot of that uh, baseline infrastructure now exists and is commercially available. Um, So now it can be about you solving your problem. And I kind of liken it to early days of, of the internet in some ways of, okay, we all have this internet. We have this world wide web that we could log into, but then it's like, what does it do? Where do I go? There's nothing here. And, but, you know, now that it's, it's ubiquitous, um, I don't think any of us could imagine life without being connected in this way. So I think it's this whole part of the ecosystem is largely the same. It's like when we have, everything can be connected easily and seamlessly and we can pass data around and make decisions based on the world being really instrumented and observed in almost real time. Whoa. 
Yeah. Um, just the amount of knowledge that we will have that's easily to easily digestible and accessible just changes how we can make decisions. The amount of data that we'll have available is just incredible. And part of that new space ecosystem is this, it really is a, a change of mindset kind of across the board. And then um, where I think this is really important and, and I, I like this on, on my UAG point, and this is why I've started my own company now, is how do we help accelerate that integration of these new areas of focus and these new companies with some of the more classic government functions. We have to innovate faster. We have to rethink how do we use these commercial services and um, what's an Air Force thing versus what is leveraging a commercial thing. The end of the space shuttle program kind of brought about this sort of, it it was the initial catalyst in sort of the privatization of, of space uh, here in America, you know, you were talking about this idea of, of how it's, you know, that's sort of thrust upon us commercial accessibility. And I wonder, is that the case internationally as well? Is is the whole world kind of experiencing that sort of uh, space travel renaissance, I guess? Yeah, uh, it, it looks different in some of the different markets, but globally speaking, um, yes. I mean, shoot, like uh, all across um, Europe, between collaborations amongst Europe, European countries and then also with the US, uh, there's all new technologies coming forth and new launch vehicles coming to market. And then where it's really interesting is more globally on how countries that really never had had a play in space before now can have one. There's this burgeoning space industry that's now coming across Africa Uh, in South America. So we have more and more countries that want to have their own space economy. And um, it's it's incredible. So it really is a truly global thing, which I think is economically exciting. So it's it's a lot of countries, they see it as as a show of of pride and a way that they can show their technical uh, emergence onto a world scale. And it's accessible for them to do so. It's really exciting. How does this affect uh, traffic in space? Because I would think if, if we're, we're approaching an era where anyone can put up a satellite, then everyone's putting up a satellite. But just, right. I would think that there are, are new and unique challenges that will have to be addressed as, as that happens. Oh, or- totally. Yeah, and that's where, you know, it's one thing how back in 2004, when I first came out to Los Angeles and was working on the space-based space space-based space surveillance program. That rolls off the tongue well. And you're fundamentally working on that problem of, okay, how do we keep track of everything that's going on up here? Because um, that's space is really big and things move really fast. Um, so you have to go through a lot of data to make sense of, of what's going on. And that problem alone is now fascinatingly creating a whole commercial set of companies. Oh. <laughs> it's so fun. Um, it's created a fun uh, kind of big data surveillance problem of looking up, um, as well as then uh, from a policy perspective. And, you know, space is something we all share. So it really is a global conversation of um, what, is, what is okay do you drive on the right side of the road or the left side of the road? Right. We agree. And, <laughs> and what, what are going to be our norms of behavior, both in terms of 
I'm going to give you a heads up uh, before I, I, I launch something, or um, I'm going to collaborate with you on altitudes to make sure we have separation. Um, those are really all rules that are, are just now being written. You know, I hate to sound like a cliche in terms of an exciting time, but it's like, wow, just over the last year, the object number of objects in space is, is, is starting to increase exponentially. And we're, we're writing the policy like faster than the stuff is going into orbit, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's, it's a, uh, again, it's something where we have to collaborate both between the government and industry as well as internationally to say, do we all agree? And um, where do we want to make rules or not? And um, so it's a it's an ongoing conversation, uh, and even you know testimonies going in between our new NASA administrator and Congress, even right now, of of how are we going to address these problems and, and cooperate on an international scale. And at some point in between all of this, you found time to climb Kilimanjaro. <laughs> We got to relax somehow, right? <laughs> My husband and I were, you know, that's hiking and mountaining, mountaineering is just, just fun and nice way to be able to clear your head, get some fresh air and went to Kilimanjaro. I think it was 2009 when we, when we climbed Kili and it's just, just an amazing experience. It's, it's a beautiful mountain. Um, but even, even more so it's like we, that was our first trip to uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and just fell in love with it. It's just uh, every time I go, it's it's a, just a total mind-blowing, mind-bending experience of, of just how beautiful our, our world is and just how amazing every facet of the world really is. It's just so much fun. Experience Dare to Explore Milestones to Mars, the all-new exhibit sponsored by Lockheed Martin at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Dare to Explore Milestones to Mars takes visitors on a six-decade journey of space exploration and looks at the innovation that has prepared humans to land on the moon and go beyond. Especially designed for young visitors with school groups and families, this exhibit includes interactive displays and activities that demonstrate how we will live and work in space. This experience is included with your U.S. Space and Rocket Center general admissions. Visit rocketcenter.com for tickets today. Uh, on the UAG, the fact that I get to work very closely with Pamela Melroy and Eileen Collins, which are, are two of my heroes. And also on the UAG, you've got David Wolf from the, from the space shuttle, Jack Schmidt from an Apollo astronaut and the legendary Buzz Aldrin. So again, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, pinch me. Um, and one of my dear friends, uh, Jack Fisher, he flew, he actually two days ago was his four year anniversary of launching to the space station. And I really lived vicariously through him, through his selection, training, and then crew assignment. Um, if, if someone told me I could go tomorrow, I'd pack my bag and go. Just to be able to see the world from, from looking up at the clouds below would just be, oh, I'd love to do it. Give it a try and don't give up. If, if it's even halfway sparks your interest, go give it a try. See if you like it. See if it clicks. Um, don't give up if it doesn't 
click it first because some of this stuff's really hard to figure out, whether that's landing an airplane or calculus. Um, so don't give up. But at the same time, if it's if you then aren't if you aren't passionate about it, revector a bit. So make sure you're doing things that you truly enjoy. Um, but give it a try. Don't give up. And you know, when it really, really gets hard, think, breathe, relax. <laughs> I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time And I'll let you